I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. It's that time of year again. The days after Valentine's can mean either basking in the renewed hope and fulfillment of a loving and intimate relationship, or picking up the pieces of the shattered web of lies you thought was love. (laughs) If you're in the latter group, that means figuring out what to do with all those gifts built for two. Here at Peg Tut's Romance Lost and Found, we will help you figure out what to do with those gifts. Just try us. Yeah, I booked a romantic weekend at a spa for two, but then my girlfriend dumped me. What do I do now? Call your brother. Remember him? He'll go with you. He loves a good Manny Petty, and you guys haven't talked since you accidentally said his wife was a money-grubbing hoppy. Oops, we can fix. I got a pair of furry handcuffs as a gift from my boyfriend, but he's cheating on me with that skank Mona. Help me, please. This is an easy one. Open the phone book and find a friendly Bill Bondsman. Then surprise him with a gift of furry, more comfortable handcuffs. They will appreciate it, and so will their perps. Win-win. I've got a large tub of body chocolate and nobody to put it on. Am I stuck with it forever? Last time I checked, you didn't need somebody else's body to lick body chocolate off of. Did you know you can reach your own arm with your tongue? Problem solved. Plus, we think of scenarios you would never think of. Did you know most gifts are refundable? Did you know you can eat rose petals in salads? Did you know that manslaughter isn't as bad as murder? So come on in to Peg Tut's Romance Lost and Found, just off Highway 401, next to Peg Tut's Gift Wrap Emporium and Salazar's Everyday Cobras, a Peg Tut venture. And coming soon, my all-new enterprise combining my love of postmodern burlesque and my natural gift for gab. It's, it's... on GPS devices. Tonight, comedian Ian Carmel, author Elizabeth Weil, and music from Hey Marseille. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hummeister. And you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience and in just one hour, the time it took Dr. Seuss to write the vegan version of Green Eggs and Ham, he writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the course of the show. And of course, music from our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Thank you, Ralph. And we have a special band member tonight, don't we? Yes, we do. My brother all the way from New York City, Richard Huntley. Welcome, Richard I'm drunk. Welcome to the show. He's playing quite well. I have to say, I'm a little concerned about his uh, extreme lack of facial hair. Yeah. Did he know he was coming to Portland? He runs a band in New York called Button Tops, so it's kind of a... (laughs) Different thing than a mutton chop. Nice. Nice. That might go over better than that. Keeping it all in the family. Well, welcome, Richard. Thanks for being with us tonight. So, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we have Ian Carmel. He'll be on later. Uh, He's going to tell a harrowing story 
of the life of a touring comic. And we have Elizabeth Weil. She'll be on the show as well. And she spent a year trying to improve her relationship. And she wrote a book called No Cheating, No Dying. I had a good marriage, and I tried to make it better. And the book has a lot of great stories and ideas. But one of the most interesting ideas she discusses is one I was already patently familiar with, and that is the concept of limerence and how we can be tricked by it. I'm not sure if you're familiar with limerence, but uh, it's just another one of nature's cruel jokes like childbearing hips or Newt Gingrich's hair. Um, It's a theory that was put forth by Dorothy Tenov in her 1979 book, Love and Limerence. And uh, in the book, she defines limerence as, quote, an involuntary state of mind which seems to result from a romantic attraction to another person combined with an overwhelming obsessive need to have one's feelings reciprocated, unquote. Um, And that just sort of sounds like love, doesn't it? Um, But what limerence does, among other things, is it actually, it floods our brains with chemicals that cloud our judgment for the first 12 to 18 months of any romantic entanglement. Physiological effects can include heart palpitations, trembling, pallor, general weakness, stuttering, shyness, loss of appetite, dizziness, or passing out. Ask your doctor if limerence is right for you. So what happens is, you think you're in love, but as long as you know limerence exists, how do you actually know if you're in love? And I think we all, especially as women, uh, we have enough sort of intrusive thoughts pounding on our brains at the beginning of a relationship, like, you know, does he feel the same way? Does he want kids? Is he in it for the long haul? What's with all his ear hair? And does laser hair removal work in the ear canal? Uh, What kind of person wears a sweater vest unironically? (laughs) Is he actually sucking on that chicken wing bone right in front of me? Because that's disgusting. (laughs) So with all of these really important questions, we don't have time to also ask ourselves, is what I'm feeling love or is what I'm feeling some chemical compound working on my brain and telling me that I will be able to live with a person who says espresso for the rest of my life? So you know what? Just do yourself a favor and pretend I never mentioned limerence. Everything you're feeling is most probably love, the kind that forgives all that crap I mentioned earlier because of the way he looks at you while he watches you walk to your car in the morning, and also the way you both sob hysterically and beg for your mommies at that one part of The Shining where the old lady comes out of the tub. That's love. Our musical guest tonight started as a duo at the University of Washington six years ago and has now grown to a seven-piece band where the instruments played often outnumber the actual players themselves. Their first album, To Travels and Trunks, was ranked among the best of the Northwest in 2008, and the eclectic orchestral sounds they brought to their Tiny Desk concert made it one of NPR's favorites of 2010. Uh, Trying to watch seven people surrounding a tiny little desk must have been quite interesting. (laughs) Their most recent release is the EP Elegy. Please welcome Hey Marseille to Livewire.
of Hey Marseille is Matt Bishop. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for joining us so much. So I actually read that you, um, that you did a lot of busking on the streets when you were a teenager in Snohomish. That's in Washington, is that right? That is, yes. It just seems like a very scary thing to do when you're a teenager. Was it scary to put yourself out there like that so young? It was. Everything is scary when you're a teenager, I think. So, so what, what made you able to go out there and do it? Um, ah, just an aspiration to want to play in some capacity and know that I couldn't play my own songs. So, because I didn't have any, so busking is a good second alternative, and it makes you way more money when you're. 15. It does. Yeah. When you play covers. Yes. Yeah. I was writing a lot of um, Christian songs that only had one chord, um, <laughs> and those never made a lot of money. You, th- you'd think that God would have taught you more chords. <laughs> And I am not of the faith anymore, so that's (laughs) one of my primary disappointments. (laughs) In life? Yeah, I picture one of those porcelain Jesuses that are playing basketball with the kids, kind of with your guitar, and you not working out so well. Not a good guitar teacher. Um, (laughs) Speaking of covers, actually, you have played and offered up for free one of the most beautiful covers of uh, Daniel Johnston's. Um, song True Love Will Find You in the End. You offered that up this Valentine's Day. If people go to your Bandcamp page, they yes. can actually find that song. Yeah. Um, what made you cover that song? Um, I think we were, we were looking to cover um, a tune that's uh, pretty, well by, pretty well beloved by folks who run in our circles and uh, something that would allow us enough space to put our own stamp on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'd messed with a lot of different things, and that one turned out the best. And, yeah, for people who don't know who Daniel Johnston is, he, he became very successful in the early 80s, I think. He made all of these uh, mixtapes of his own yeah. music. And it's just very beautiful, very personal music. And it's a stunning love song. And it's, I read in an interview that you kind of have trouble yourself writing sort of earnest love songs. If you play a song like that, does it sort of internalize and maybe help a little bit with that? Well... My, the interview was about how all of my songs are about never having love or losing love. And, like, I've never had a song that um, I've really felt comfortable that's about the joy of love and the satisfaction. And maybe that speaks to my own life trajectory. Um, but <laughs> the Daniel Johnson song is True Love Will Find You in the End. So hopeful, but still kind of like, ah. <laughs> right. Not quite there yet. Things, things aren't going well yeah, now, so but well in the with, end... Yeah. It's going to happen for you. Someday. It's what my mother has always said. <laughs> um, and I believe it for you as well. Um, and, so, and you guys are almost finished with, with your next record, right? Yes. 
So when can pe- is, do you have a time when people might be able to expect to see that? Well, we've been almost finished for about a year, so. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know what? We don't want to rush you. <laughs> we're hoping, we're we hoping by the end you. of the summer, by the well, fall for sure. Well, and if people want to hear something new from you, they can go to your Bandcamp page and download that beautiful Daniel Johnston yes, song. Yes, yeah. Wonderful. Sure. And you're going to come play one more song for us as we well are. later on in the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Hey, Marseille, everybody. Music tonight brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the Bread of the Week, 21 Whole Grains Killer Light. This lightweight is coming at you with an uppercut of omega-3s and a right hook of 100% whole grains. Don't turn your back on this bread, ever. (laughs) Dave's Killer Bread, making the world a better place, one loaf of bread at a time. Hey, Kim Jong-il. Do you know what the best thing about being dead is? What'd you say, Gaddafi? I said, do you know what is the best thing about being dead? You know, I don't think this place has Wi-Fi. This is hell. Oh, how many times do I got to tell you this isn't hell, okay? This is limbo. So we're just sort of hanging out. Well, limbo happens to look a lot like Dallas-Fort Worth International. (laughs) I don't know if that's some kind of a metaphor or what, but... Gosh, it's really great just sitting here with you, out in the open. No fear of being shot at by anyone. Just two guys wearing normal guy clothes. That is nice. I love wearing blue jeans and underwear. Before I died, I could only wear my cool stuff like my Levi's and my Hanes Hawaii control top pantyhose and the gold-plated confines of my bunk underneath my 27 palaces. Uh, I'm glad I never have to wear khaki again. I can't tell you how happy that makes me. At the end, you know, I was into dashikis. Uh, that wasn't my best look. What's up, bitches? Osama! Hey, man, it's good to see you guys. I was getting lonely. How long you been up here, Osama? A little while, Kim Jong. Did you know that there is a Chili's in Limbo? <laughs> yeah, it's over in Concourse C. They have got a happy hour menu that you would not believe. Mozzarella sticks, taquitos, sliders, all for $2. So tell me, when did you guys get here? Well, there was a little trouble in my country, and the next thing you know, I'm being dragged out of a drain by a bloodthirsty mob, and boom, here I am. (laughs) I had a stroke. Right, right, a stroke. For real, I keep telling you. I think it had to do with my strict salt-only diet. I only ate things that were heavily salted or just salt by itself. You know, I think I had some crazy ideas at the end there, you guys. No, no fooling, okay? Well, the Americans surprised me at my holiday play during my annual May Day pool party and barbecue. They sent in these dogs that I swear to Allah had metal teeth. No joke, those suckers were nuts. Once, on a dare, I gave an Uzi to a drunk orangutan. <laughs> Not a good end to that story. Uh, well, what are you guys doing while you waited out here? Well, it's Academy Awards season, so I'm getting my Oscar pool started. Oh. It was kind of bumming me out because, you know, I used to have, like, this entire population to participate in. So then that was kind of fun. But this year, it's just, you know, me and Gaddafi. But now we can count on you, right, Osama? You know it. Put me down for 20 bucks for the artist to sweep. What? The artist. Yeah. I don't see what the big deal is. It was cute. hmm? But it's had some major flaws. Blah, 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 blah. blah. The only reason you don't like it is because it's French. The French only do two things well. (laughs) Wine and cowardice. I have no time for either. Mm. Osama, what, what are you eating? Guys, it's this great yogurt that Jamie Lee Curtis sells. It'll change your life, I swear to God. <laughs> Listen to mm. the three of us clowning around like old times. You know what, you guys? I think being executed was the best thing that could have mm-hmm. happened to us. I told you I had a strong. Uh-huh. Right, yeah, right. right uh-huh. Well, I for one am loving it. I'm eating right, getting exercise, and the duty-free store here is to die for. I got this bottle of Blue Seduction by Antonio Banderas. I smell like a Spanish sunset. Tots. You know, I'm getting hungry, you guys. You guys want to split some apps or something? Yeah, let's take a stroll down to Chili's and uh, I'll buy you guys some wings. Now eh? you're talking. And hey, if we get Michelle as our waitress, stay out of my way. I'm trying to make a play there. Oh. Is that dating in limbo? I'll tell you in the morning. <laughs> 
That was Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, and Jason Rouse with sound effects by David Ian. You're listening to Livewire right now, and we thank you. We know you have many choices when it comes to your radio variety show needs, and we are grateful you've chosen us to fulfill them. Coming up next on your radio variety show of choice, a story from comic Ian Carmel, a chat with Elizabeth Weil, poet Scott Poole, and more from Hey Marseille. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Livewire. Last year, our next guest beat some really serious competition to win the highly coveted Portland's Funniest Person contest. He then traveled to perform at South by Southwest, where they honored his Funniest Person card, making him the funniest person in Austin for two full days. This year, he blew the roof off entertainment news with his show Spicy News with Ian Carmel, wherein he eats a habanero pepper, then attempts to deliver hot celebrity gossip immediately after. <laughs> Here with a story about the trials and tribulations of a traveling comic, please welcome Ian Carmel to Livewire. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Hello. Uh, yeah. I've been, uh, I've been doing stand-up comedy for two and a half years, but I feel like this is the year I can finally really call myself a stand-up comedian. This, by the way, is something stand-up comedians tell themselves pretty much every single year as a, sort of a show of fake humility and to front like we understand the weird pulsating aurora borealis of Michigas that happens in our heads all the time. Uh, I make most of my money doing stand-up comedy now. While it's not a handsome amount of money, I'm able to afford rent, and I can have chicken wings for dinner like two to three times a week. Uh, yeah. My dreams are starting to come true, which is amazing. It's amazing. But, uh, you know, when your dreams start to come true, sometimes you can also be presented with a challenge. And, uh, so the first gig that I had to buy a plane ticket to go and do was uh, in Austin, Texas. It was the first week of January, and I found out about it back in... November, and I was excited that it was Austin, because the first thing that I ever heard about Austin was that it wasn't Houston. That was the first thing I heard <laughs> when I was like eight years old, and that is so mind-boggling and infuriating to an eight-year-old, right? Like, they, do they have no idea I'm going to be tested on this at some point? They have a city called Houston and one called Austin. This is ridiculous. They could have called Houston anything. They could have called it Hakeem Olajuwania. That would have been better. They could have called it fat people in the Astrodome. Even that would have been better. Anything. So that was the first thing I heard about Austin. The second thing I heard about Austin was that it was like Portland. Over and over and over again, I heard that Austin is like Portland in Texas. And this was comforting because I know my jokes work in Portland. And I didn't want my first real road gig to be in a city where I get up there and tell my jokes. And then somebody stands up and is like, hey, you can tell jokes about the Wu-Tang Clan or public radio, but not both. Not both, buddy. <laughs> so everything was lining up for this to be like the perfect first road gig, right? And because everything was lining up to be perfect, this is the point in the story when I have to say, and then something went terribly wrong, right? <laughs> Otherwise, this would be a really boring story. I'd be like, oh, the show went great. Thanks, Portland. Oh, God. <laughs> So you're not supposed to flush an empty toothpaste container down the toilet, apparently. 
My girlfriend didn't know this, and I honestly don't think I would have known it either. I honestly thought you could flush pretty much anything down the toilet. Uh, toothpaste containers, paper towels, secrets. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently you're not supposed to flush any of that stuff down the toilet. Uh, so the toilet got clogged. Now that's the kind of minor problem. You call your landlord, they send someone to fix it. You pay way more money than you think is reasonable for that pleasure. But I decided that I wanted to fix it myself. I wanted to take it upon myself. I wanted to fix this clogged toilet, right? I don't do anything manly. I'm terrible at doing masculine things. Like if somebody was like, chop down that tree in 24 hours or I'll kill you. I would just try to have a really fulfilling last 24 hours. <laughs> So I did the manly thing, and I googled toothpaste container flush. <laughs> and it gave me this list of instructions. And the first instruction was to uh, turn off the water flow to the toilet. I felt like that made sense, so I laid down on the bathroom. I laid down on a towel, then I laid down on the bathroom floor. And uh, I started turning off the flow of the water, right? And I thought I got it all the way to the righty-tighty. And uh, I... I gave it one last torque for safety, and when I did that, the paper mache welding that had... <laughs> that had fastened this hose to the wall came flying off, and a laser beam of water shot me right in the face. Like, so much water. It was coming so fast. It was like a civil rights amount of water. It was ridiculous. <laughs> the, the Southern Poverty Law Center protested my landlord... It was like all of the water in Portland was trying to flow into my apartment. It was like hitting me right in the face, and I was yelling at my girlfriend and cursing Poseidon, you know what I mean, trying to fix it. <laughs> and the, the water was starting to flood my bathroom, and then it was getting into the hallway, and it was heading towards, like, the bedrooms. And uh, my girlfriend had to call the fire department to come and turn off the water for the entire apartment building, right? It was really inconvenient, and it was soaked. Every, the bathroom was soaked. The apartment was soaked. My carefully curated selection of bathroom reading material was ruined. <laughs> you know, I had to leave for Austin the next day. I was fighting with my girlfriend. My apartment was awful. And then I got a phone call, and my grandfather had died. Not from the flood. Uh, <laughs> that had nothing to do with By all accounts... My grandfather had been kind of a complicated person when he was younger, right? He was all like pomade and big cars and broken promises, like that kind of guy. <laughs> but as a grandfather, he was sweet and loving and sort of like a living celebration of the Rat Pack, right? Like he looked, he looked like Tony Bennett and he would dress up in a tuxedo and go sing Frank Sinatra songs at karaoke nights. Like this was a thing... He actually did, and he loved it, right? He really sold it. He really believed, like, he did that ha move that sometimes crooners used to do, like, way more than they ever did it. You know, that was his kind of favorite thing to do, just, like, four or five times a song. Ha, 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 like there was a band playing behind him. Um, and it felt like it took him, like, ten years to die. You know, and it, was, it was one of those things. Like, he gradually, steadily slipped into dementia. Like, one by one, people and things and memories started to slip away from him. Every so often, I would get a phone call from my mom saying, you know, I don't think we have much more time with him. This might be it. You should spend some time with him. So, you know, you'd kind of brace for it and then flash forward three months and he'd be singing karaoke in another bar full of, like, angry old drunk guys with battleship names on their hats. So, yeah. <laughs> this last year, though, it looked like this might actually be it. You know what I mean? Like, he was in a home, and he was all dried out and really old, like a raisin or a lazy simile. Uh, <laughs> I got a call from my mom on New Year's Eve saying that he had, like, double pneumonia. He had fluid in both of his lungs, right, you know, and I should get down there if I could. If there's any way I could get down there. She was like, it's New Year's. I know you can't. You're probably out partying. I wasn't. I'd been doing a show uh, to stand up, like a New Year's Eve party, where someone was also dressed like a goat and doing weird trapeze gymnastics, you know, yeah, because I live in Portland. And, uh... 
Once you've seen that in a night, you're not really going to get anything out of being drunk, right? Like, I mean... <laughs> so I was sober, so, I, you know, I went and picked up my girlfriend, and we proceeded to the home, you know, and my mom was there, and my aunt was there, and uh, so was my grandpa, and he was all hunched over in his chair and, like, breathing really heavy, and my mother was, you know, kneeling before him, rubbing his feet to help the circulation. Like, it was kind of a beautiful, dramatic moment. It felt like really good TV, you know, like, uh, if Sally Field had rushed into the room and then, like, huddled together with my mom and my aunt, they all started sobbing, I would have been like, yeah, totally, exactly, that's a... Where the hell's Greg Kinnear? What's happening here? Uh... But, uh, you know, so we stayed for an hour, and we rang in the new year all together, which was really nice. And, you know, I said my goodbyes to my grandpa, but I didn't really buy it because he'd pulled through so many times before, and he was still alive the next day, and then he was gone. You know, he was gone. So there I was with a flooded apartment and a dead grandpa and a plane ticket to Austin, and I was way more sad than I thought I'd be. You know, I thought because of, like, the dementia that he died slowly, that I'd be able to parse out my grief and my mourning over that entire period, like some sort of great deal on a washer-dryer combo. That's, uh... <laughs> it's not how it happened. I, I didn't even want to go to Austin anymore, you know. I, more than that, I didn't feel right going to Austin. My mom made me go to Austin, and they moved the funeral until after I got back, and I felt guilty, and I felt like my priorities were all out of whack. And even after arriving in Austin, I still didn't feel right there, and it wasn't until I was sitting in the dark of the club watching the MC warm up the crowd that my mind drifted to an image of my grandpa, Ron Benner, dressed in a tuxedo, belting out his favorite songs into a karaoke machine at Spot 79, which is just a dive bar kind of in deep southeast Portland. Not a great place. Uh, <laughs> and then the MC called my name when I stepped onto the stage, and I knew the only real way to honor the kind of guy who would put on a bow tie to go sing at a karaoke bar was to suck it up and tell my jokes about the Wu-Tang Clan in public radio. Yeah. And the people laughed, and, you know, they didn't, and then they laughed again. Everything felt right. You know, it finally felt right, and it felt comfortable, and probably the same kind of comfort you get when you're singing your favorite songs in a karaoke bar when your mind is slowly betraying you, right? It's the same kind of comfort. And the week went well, and I flew home, and we buried my grandpa, and it's comforting to know that he's finally at peace. And on top of that, I finally know when you become a real stand-up comedian. When it becomes the only thing that helps you make sense of all the world that's happening around you, that's when you become a real stand-up comedian. Or when I get Conan, probably. Uh, <laughs> thank you, ladies and gentlemen. That was Ian Carmel, and you're listening to LiveWire Radio. To download our podcast, visit LiveWireRadio.org or subscribe on iTunes. Oh, hi, Clint. Uh, thanks for coming. Please have a seat. Uh, do you know why you're here? Well, I'm guessing you want to congratulate me for the direction I took the Puppy Bowl this year. And before you say it, you're welcome. Yes, well... We it's, it's more of a post-mortem, actually. Mm. Well, I think my work speaks for itself. Oh, it didn't speak. It shouted, Clint. Clint, you came very highly recommended by the NFL. Yeah, three Pro Bowls and a Thanksgiving Classic. No one here knows what those are. But that's fine. That's fine. Those sound great, but um, we feel like you might have gone outside of your mandate and took things a bit too seriously at this year's Puppy Bowl. Well, ladies, I bring the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. My mandate is to make the good folks at home feel like they're right there on the gridiron. My mandate is to adhere to the rules and sportsmanship above all. Well, Clint, there's not really sportsmanship in the traditional sense in that they're all puppies. Yeah, they're not even sports puppies, Clint. They're just regular puppies on a tiny fake football field chasing... Various toys. And kittens at halftime, and picture leaders, and hamsters, and a little blimp. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, ladies, but if you're not going to hold them to even basic standards... All right, you know what? Let's look at the video, shall we? Here is where you gave the MVP award to Fumble, a Chihuahua Terrier uh -huh. mix, even though everyone loves Aberdeen, the scrappy Australian Shepherd. Right, the MVP is for fundamentals, okay? Uh, let's go to the instant replay on this one. Uh, okay, here's Aberdeen gnawing the squeaky wiener. And then uh, here he is up on his hind legs for four seconds. That's excessive celebration, and that is why he got flagged. 
All right, about that. The flags are for the dogs to play with. That's it. So when I call butterscotch for clipping, what do you suggest I throw? Oh, just pretend to throw something. They'll still chase it. Well, exactly. They're undisciplined. They're puppies. We cannot stress this enough. I stand by my original call. You ejected mittens. Well, when you're offsides and called for roughing as many times as mittens, you're damn right you're hitting the showers early. I mean, she bit an opposing player. She's a puppy. They bite everything, including themselves. Okay, okay. Um, let's move on to the post-production. <clears throat> now, why exactly did you censor out all the puppies' bottoms here? Well, come on. I mean, if the FCC got wind of a wardrobe malfunction like this, I mean, Janet Jackson slipped out one teat, okay? Some of these little buggers have ten. Okay. It's not a wardrobe malfunction, Clint. Dogs have no wardrobes. They exist in a state of nature and are always nude. Oh, unless you take the time to put them in a little bee costume or something, and they'll wriggle right out of that more times than not. Uh, look, I will not be party to the distribution of that kind of graphic imagery. There are millions of children watching. You cannot prevent children from seeing a dog's bottom. Literally, every single dog in the entire world has a bottom. It's usually the thing they're most proud of. Yes. Well, that segues nicely into my proposal for next year. What I'm imagining is a whole line of puppy uniforms with an integrated carbon fiber diaper system branded with the Animal Planet logo. Yeah, there will be no diapers next year because there will be no you next year. Besides, lots of people watch just for the pooping. Wait. I just ordered 12 crates of puppy helmets to cover up the distracting puppy cuteness. Yeah, get out. Okay, we, we feel really terrible, so please um, help yourself to a basket of puppies on the way out. That was Trisha Ferguson and Sean McGrath with sound effects by David Ian. Our next guest has written for many publications you probably recognize, like Mother Jones, Vogue, and the New York Times Magazine. And in the winter of 2009, she decided that while she worked on making her career better and her writing better, her half-marathon time better, she hadn't actually focused on the single most important relationship in her life. So she actually decided to make her marriage better by talking to psychotherapists, financial planners, and rabbis. The result is her book, No Cheating, No Dying, I Had a Good Marriage, Then I Tried to Make It Better. Please welcome Elizabeth Weil to Livewire. Welcome to Livewire, Elizabeth. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> so I really enjoyed the book, um, but I just wanted to start off with, I think, you know, we've all heard the expression, never try to make a happy baby happier, and it feels like marriages might be the same thing. Really, maybe Don't try not, to make a happy spouse happier. Or a happy marriage happier. Don't poke at it if it's working. Yeah. You know, I didn't really <laughs> learn that lesson. Did you not? What, what I skipped made you, that one. Yeah. What made you want to do? What made you want to do this? Well, I, you know, as you were in your kind introduction, I realized I was being a strangely lazy wife. I was not a really lazy person. Mm -hmm. You know, I knew a lot about how I was supposed to be a good parent, and I tried to be a good writer, and I tried to be a good friend, and I wasn't trying. I mean, it was all good. It was pretty much all good. But once you realize you're not trying, if you're if you're a trier, yeah, it kind of sticks with you. Well, and um, so one of the things that, that you did was go to therapy, and you did lots of things. Mm -hmm. um, and you did go to therapy, and, and you said in the book that most people go to therapy six years after they should have started. Yeah, there are these studies where the average couple is unhappy for six years before they go to a, see a therapist. And um, What are the results of that kind of... Well, <laughs> one of the psychologists who wrote about this used this very chilling analogy where he sort of writes about how it's basically like if you had a broken leg and you didn't go see a doctor for six years, and that the six years later, you know, you're going to be so screwed up, like you're maybe going to have gangrene, you're going to lose your leg, and if you had just gone to the doctor, yeah, it would have been fine. Yeah, it's sort of like going when you very first feel a toothache. Yes, it's like dental things. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so how was it for you guys uh, to go to therapy for <laughs> the, therapy? the first time? Well, I was a little anti-therapy, oddly, when I started the book. So, you know, therapy's complicated, and therapy's awful a lot of the time. And then 
But in the long run, it was terrific. Although one of the more humbling things I learned was that I thought my husband was the crazy one in our marriage. And I learned that wasn't really true. <laughs> now, were you both crazy or were you the crazy one? Well, no, he's definitely crazy. But mm-hmm. I learned <laughs> that I too, perhaps, am somewhat crazy. What did you learn? <laughs> what, what uncomfortable truth did you learn about yourself, aside from the crazy thing? I mm-hmm. learned that I'm a little bit of a bully sometimes. I didn't think of myself as a bully. Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit, I, well, I think I'm a rehabilitated bully. But I was being a bit of a bully, particularly around, like, when our kids were young, I would thought, you know, well, I'll just deal. Mm-hmm. Do what I want to do in that in the long run. Because you were the mom? Because I was the mom, and yeah, you know, I thought, well, I'll just have it my way. Yeah. Um, there was actually, you actually read a lot of marriage self-help books as well, we which must have been a joy. Joy. Huge a joy. joy. You. You've not seen joy until you tell your husband that you want to read a lot of marriage self-help books. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what did he say? There was a scene. He walked in. You had, you had mentioned this Yeah, when idea. I first presented this idea to him. Well, he was getting slightly freaked out because I had been lying in bed reading a book called Ken Love Lash, The Fate of Romance Over Time. And... <laughs> And we really did have a very happy marriage. And he's like looking over like, honey, are, are you not telling me something? So then I follow that up with, honey, what do you think about the idea of like really doing a lot of, you know, self-help and marriage therapy? And he said, I can't think of anything worse. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you, you read a lot of marriage self-help books and some of them were older. And there was uh, one that was particularly funny that I was hoping that you would read. All right. There was a 1933 assessment uh, that worked on a system of merits and demerits based largely on manners. Demerits for husbands included picks teeth, nose, or sucks teeth in public, calls where is without looking first for object, teases wife about fatness, slowness, etc. Merits included makes guests feel welcome, an interesting entertainer, well-liked by men, courageous, not a sissy. His children are pleased at his arrival home. The field of marriage assessment exploded in the wake of the IQ test developed during World War I. Choosing a mate based on desire, not demographics, was relatively new. The pseudoscientific test made this trend seem less impulsive and risky, both for individual couples and for society. Good advice. Maybe yes. not the best that you that you got during the course of this. What was the best advice that you actually managed to get out of a book? I think some of the best advice was like, go do kind of risky, weird novel things together with your spouse. And that gets back to the sort of the limerence idea you were talking about at the Mm -hmm. beginning. Because if you go do weird sort of scary things, you have those in love feelings that people are sort of constantly looking to get back to. And that felt pretty great. Well, I, but when they say that, I don't think that they necessarily mean swimming from Alcatraz to San Francisco. No. Which is what you chose to do. Yes. Well, you know, so we, we both turned out to be the crazy ones. But it was fantastic. <laughs> because, like, normally in marriage, you're in this little hothouse, right, where you're in a plot if it's, like, you know, man against woman or, you know. And then you, you decide to swim from Alcatraz, and that's, like, the two of you against nature. You have yeah. a common enemy. And it was a harrowing experience. It was very cold. Yeah. <laughs> but did you, what was the feeling like after you had done that together? It was amazing. I mean, I felt like, I've never done it, but I, I felt like one imagines, I felt like what I imagine one feels after like trekking through India that you've had with your partner. You know, you've had this huge journey together and you've made it. And they're like, you know, it's that outward bound thing, you know, where like mm-hmm. <laughs> you've seen strife and come out the other side and it's beautiful. Right. Well, and w- another one of the experiences that you guys came out uh, of together was that you had gone to a workshop called Mastering the Mysteries of Love. Yes. I would say driving to Mastering the Mysteries of Love was the low point of the <laughs> entire experience. Just imagining what that would be like. Imagining what this was going to be like. We were going to spend two entire Saturdays, and this this was a class funded by the state of California where I live. That it was like going to driver's ed for 16 hours, <laughs> except it was going to be like how not how you're a terrible driver about how you're like a terrible spouse and you mm-hmm. need to be rehabilitated by the state. But um, you actually got something out of this. But we did. That was the totally amazing, almost weird part. Almost immediately, there are all these communication exercises that they teach you. And you know, I'm a writer. My husband's a writer. We thought like. We can communicate. We're professional communications people. But 
Yes, we learned, we learned a lot about empathy. Well, it forced you to actually speak as him. I found yes, that interesting. Yes, like we had to have this really weird stylized conversation where Dan told me a story and then I had to tell the story back as if I were him, you know, like I, Dan, it was a story about throwing a rock at a kid when he was a kid, you know, like threw a rock at a kid at a playground and it was very weird to like be him, you know, not have him be the object of my story, but just like fully be him. Well, and it seems like so many of the things that you did just felt so wildly uncomfortable. And I think that that's the... <laughs> it's so funny because I think that people aren't necessarily as afraid of what they're going to discover in a process like this as they are of how awkward it's all going to be. And it is awkward. That? Like, change is awkward. It was awkward. Yeah. Uh, but, but that's how things get better, yeah. really, you know, that you have to be a little uncomfortable if you want it to be different or learn something. Right, right. But I do think the general attitude of fixing it before it's broken, you know, make the happy baby happier, I think that's actually tremendous advice. Well, well, and you give it in your book. <laughs> the book is uh, No Cheating, No Dying. I had a good marriage, then I tried to make it better. The author is Elizabeth Weil. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to LiveWire, radio variety for the internet age. If you hear a word you don't know the definition of, like schizothemia, simply click on your radio at the end of the word and we will define it for you. <laughs> you, used to refer to the person or people that the speaker is addressing, as in, are you listening? And I love you. Please don't ask us to define that long one from earlier. We're not going to. We'll be right back. Hi there, I'm Mitt Romney. I'm running for the Republican nomination, and with your help can take our country back from the out of touch and out of ideas term of Barack Obama. So I'd like to just take a minute to connect with you, the hard on his luck average American voter. Now I know that times are tough right now. Heck, I just had to reroute my jet from Kendall Executive Airport to Miami International. Do you know how much of a hassle it is to land at a public airport? <laughs> Okay, um, let's try that again, Governor. Remember, you are talking to everyday Americans. Right, right. Okay. <clears throat> okay, I got it. Let's try it again. Well, I know what you're thinking. Hey, Romney, how do you know what I'm going through? Well, let me tell you, friend. I know firsthand how this Obama economy is taking a toll. I feel it, too. Last week, the hotel booked Rhiannon in the presidential suite, and I had to slum it in the governor's suite. <laughs> There are only two minibars, but never mind that. What I'm talking about is job creation, and Obama is simply not doing his part. With me as president, I'll create thousands of new jobs that hardworking Americans like you and me can embrace. Jobs like securities investor, CEO, CFO, CIO, subsidiary advisor, subsidiary, sub, look, America needs to get back on track. And I'm the guy to do just that. I'm not one of these Washington insiders that Obama has running the country into the ground. Last week I was sailing, yachting, talking with some friends. When I realized that I'm just like you, I'm feeling the sting too. 
and I know the surest way to right the ship is to fix the economy. I was telling my broker, I was telling my buddy the other day about a new era of American pride. I said, Reginald, Mortimer, Chauncey, Ed. I said, Ed, this is the time. This is where we start fixing our country. So that's why I need you. I need you to help me fix the country. I hope I can count on your support. So thank you. And may the Lord Jesus Christ bless you and allow you to marry two women. Sean McGrath with sound effects by David Ian. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, hey, Marseille.
Now, as promised, to sum it all up for us with a poem he finished writing just about 30 seconds ago, please welcome poet Scott Poole. <laughs> Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned a little about the facts of life tonight. Like when a man and a woman really love each other, sometimes you spill body chocolate all over the inside of your car on the way to a job interview while sucking your teeth. Because when a man and a woman really love each other, they try to multitask like picking up the body chocolate on the way to the job interview, because why not pre-plan a celebration of getting the job that involves swimming naked in a vat of body chocolate with vanilla wafer pasties, because one must exude confidence when interviewing for a job, and buying body chocolate early is a surefire way to rev up, unless your new suit is entirely now covered in it. If you're applying for a job as a stripper or a confectionaire, this is probably not an issue. But if you're applying for a job at about any other place on the planet, you're screwed. <laughs> Unless you think, I'll turn myself into a metaphor of how bad I want to work at this company. Sometimes crap like this works. Look at Mitt Romney. <laughs> Just tell your future employer, hey, Marseille, if that's the company's name. <laughs> I will be by far the most delicious employee you have. You know, around 2 p.m. every day when you start falling asleep at your desk, I will be the chocolatey nougat bar this company needs. I will be the seven-year-old Easter-colored M&Ms on the desk of the lady in accounts payable who wears the kitten sweaters portraying kittens knitting kitten sweaters. I'm going to make this office sing like Holland Oats. Oats are in some candies, I think. I'm going to make the productivity in this office explode like a bathroom in a building where everyone eats nothing but chocolate, cheese, and hot wings. <laughs> everyone in this office will feed off my delicious productivity until they are all flirting with each other and singing naked on top of the copier in a sugar delirium. <laughs> this is when they lead you from the building for ruining all the furniture. Because when a man and a woman really love each other, they stay the hell away from marriage, self-help books in bed, and applying for jobs covered in body chocolate. Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thanks so much for coming out. Thanks to our guests tonight, Elizabeth Weil, Ian Carmel, and Hey Marseille. The Mutton Chops are Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Richard Huntley. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and Burgerville. Introducing Burgerville Radio, featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson, with sound effects by David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, house poet Scott Poole, and Ben Coleman. Faces for Radio Theater is directed by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with House Sound by Graham Nystrom. Production management by Drew Flint. Thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Von Drele and Ralph Huntley. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire and to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review 
Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. <laughs>